And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello world, welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie and this week I am here with a really exciting interview with author Rachel Hang. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Would you mind starting us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. My name is Rachel Hang. I grew up in Singapore and I currently live in New York City. I moved to the US for college and then I left and I lived in the UK for a while for work and then I came back for grad school. And, you know, anyway, long story short, I now live in New York and I am a writer as well as a professor of creative writing at Wesleyan University. Fantastic. A very transatlantic experience, it sounds like. (laughs) Would you mind giving us a synopsis of your novel, The Great Reclamation? Yeah, so The Great Reclamation, it's a novel set in mid-century Singapore. It opens in the 1940s in a small fishing village on the southeastern coast of the island. And we follow a young boy named Lee Aboon, who who grows up in a fishing community. And essentially the novel then follows the next 20 years of his life and all of the political turmoil that happened as Singapore moves towards gaining independence from British colonialism. So it's a coming-of-age story, essentially, for for Aboon, as well as his childhood love, a girl named Siok Mei, and the ways in which that love gets tested through all of the political and geographical changes that are happening. I'm a historian, so I hope that you won't mind me digging in a little bit. But because the novel has a historical setting, would you mind just telling us a little bit about your research process and if you found out anything that surprised Mm -hmm. you while you were getting ready to write? Yeah, so I had a lot of fun doing research. It was difficult to force myself out of the research hole. But I pretty much spent a year just reading and digging into the archives before I even started writing my first draft. So reading lots of history books, actually speaking to historians, very generous historians like yourself, just kind of cold emailing people at universities and asking them if they would talk to me. And the National Archives of Singapore put a lot of their material online. So that was great because I could access it from here. And looking at like old photographs, newspaper clippings, there are a lot of oral history interviews you can listen to. So I would just listen to people talking about their lives and what it was like growing up in the period that's in the book. And then, you know, once I had done all of that research, then I often think of this quote by Toni Morrison when she talks about writing Beloved, where she says, now she had all the data and the facts. You now needed imagination to shore up the the facts and the data. So then after doing all the research, you know, sort of putting it aside and like turning to story and character and like trying to forget all the facts that I'm so excited about. Though one of them, so, so you asked what, something that surprised me, I think not necessarily surprised, but that that was very striking was this, the conveyor belt that appears in towards the end of the book when the land reclamation project is taking place. So that was based on a a real land reclamation project that happened in Singapore where they dug out a hill and moved all of that land to all of the sand that they got from the hill to the coast in order to extend the coast. And they built this miles long conveyor belt 
just to move sand from one place to another and the conveyor belt would just go like day and night, day and night. And so that was one of my favorite like facts that I learned while I was researching this book. That is a really interesting fact. That's that's a really it's good so one. Weird. Um, <laughs> it is so weird. I think that that's the most underrated part of doing history is that people yeah. have always been weird and that means history is very strange. Totally, totally. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I love uh, you bringing in that Toni Morrison quote as well, because I think that that's the beauty of historical fiction is that mm-hmm. it's it's based in reality, but it is a story. Mm-hmm. And the story of the Great Reclamation is that coming of age where you feel so deeply and so attached to all of the characters. The beginning of the novel follows our main character, Aboon, as a child and documents kind of two really big events in his life. The discovery of islands that it seems that only he can find, but make his family more prosperous and strengthens his relationship with his father. And then the sudden death of Pa as war kind of comes crashing into their home. I was wondering why it was important to you that we saw Pa's perspective in that first part of the book and understand his perspective on his relationship with Aboon. I think I wanted the whole book to be polyphonic, to have that quality of like being the perspective of the community, not just the individual. And, you know, I I know I describe it as a coming of age story, but I think the interesting thing of coming of age stories is that they're never individuals growing up in isolation, right? It's about an individual trying to find their place in society in relation to their community and the people that they love. And so to me, it was very important to have those perspectives of like the other people in the village. So you have Pa, you have Ma, you have his uncle, you have other, just other, you know, neighbors and relatives and people outside the village as well. Because I think, you know, it's, it's a story about not just Aboon, but also a story of kind of the coming of age of Singapore as a young country and the fact that it was never a straightforward thing, that everyone, you know, obviously like anything, that, you know, everyone had differ- differing opinions and there were conflicts and kind of these different values that were in tension with one another. So I think it was very important to have past perspective early on as like such a pivotal personality in Aboon's life and the fact that like his love and the loss of him shaped Aboon to such a great degree and, you know, kind of set him on a certain cause as his life goes on. Yeah, I love that you bring up the polyphonic nature of the novel. I was trying, I have a question that dives into that more later, but I was thinking about it and I was like, there's almost the macro level plot of what's happening at the community level and how that influences almost the the micro plot of how what's happening at the community level plays in the lives of the characters that we're following most closely. Mm-hmm. And I don't use macro and micro to say that one is more important or less important than the other, but it's so fascinating to see how these larger stories, I think, influence so much the thoughts and feelings mm-hmm. of the characters that we come to know so well. Mm-hmm. Pa specifically to me is a really fascinating character because while he's only physically present in the first part of the novel, he almost becomes kind of a, a ghost-like figure after his mm-hmm. death who Abun often thinks about, but the family rarely actually speaks of. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you thought about Abun's grieving process and how in mm-hmm. your mind his relationship with his father and his death morphed as he was kind of growing from that child figure to the adult that he is at the end of the novel. Yeah, so I I mean, I think his grieving process is, you know, kind of one that I saw around me growing up in Singapore. I think that's very common to the culture that you don't talk about death or you don't talk about, you know, things that have happened that were unhappy or anything. You know, you don't talk about tragedy. It's kind of seen as like 
bad luck or like misfortune, like don't dwell on that. Let's just move on. And so I think it felt, it just felt very true to who he would have been and what he would have experienced that, you know, after Pa dies, they kind of, they address it briefly after he dies, but then they just never speak of it again. But each character is in a way haunted by Pa, even though he's no longer there. So you have the mother as well, who's like thinking about him, you know, and she's like looking for signs of him in the house that she still lives in. You have the uncle who is completely you know, beset by guilt for what happened because he thinks that it's his fault and that continues to affect his actions for like decades to come. And then obviously you have Abun who's always thinking about, okay, like what would my father have wanted? What would he have thought? Because he was such a like moral compass for him that he's always trying to figure out like, okay, you know, what would he have done? Like, that's what I want to do. But obviously he can never really know, right? Because he's gone. And so I think that experience of like collective grief within the the community to me spoke to like a a wider grieving that I think the country went through after something as like traumatic as World War II. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and I, I feel like you really feel that throughout the novel. This is, I think, to me, is a novel that really feels like every word and every sentence felt so intentional to me and it was really I think a joy as a reader to see how something that's mentioned in one chapter comes immediately back in another chapter but not necessarily in the way that you think it will in terms of how it hits the characters emotionally. I hope that this doesn't sound too frivolous but something I was thinking about a lot while I was reading was actually birth order and kind of navigating Mm one's place and one's family. Abun is the second child and he spends a lot of his childhood struggling up against his older brother, Hia. Mm -hmm. When he's young, he kind of finds solace in his relationship with his mother and his uncle, who he seems to kind of fit in with better on the surface of it. And I was wondering if it was really intentional for you that Abun needed to be a younger sibling while you were writing and how you thought about kind of crafting a character in general who feels some uncertainty about his place in his family and then who takes some of that uncertainty with him into adulthood. Yeah, that's such an insightful question. Thank you. I don't think I thought about it necessarily in that way, but I definitely wanted Abun to be someone who was at odds with the world around him, who didn't feel like he fit in entirely. And it made sense that he would have this like older role model who seems so perfect to him, right? That he's like, I can never live up to him. Because I think he needed to be slightly at odds in order to then take the step outside of his community. Because if he wasn't, then he would just kind of stay within the world, right? He would just continue life as is and kind of like stick to the status quo. But because I knew he was someone who was going to like make a different choice and that he was going to, you know, change his life so drastically I kind of needed him from the very beginning to be like slightly like not fitting in entirely and maybe that's why he's the younger younger brother yeah that makes a lot of sense he spends a lot of time in between in the novel mm-hmm. trying to navigate his path and I think that a lot of that in-betweenness comes from his relationships with the woman in his life his mother his childhood best friend and love so may and his wife Natalie And I guess to start with, with kind of all three of these female characters, can you tell me a little bit about Abun's relationship with his ma and why that relationship is so central to his story throughout his life? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because even you're the second person to point that out. I hadn't thought about it, but someone else said like, oh, really, his life is set on its path because of the women in it. And he doesn't actually, you know, he's almost like slightly passive in that. I think... I grew up with a lot of strong women around me. You know, I was raised by a single mom. She had three sisters. She has three sisters. And so they were always these like very 
vocal female present like voices in my life kind of judging what was going on and like directing and you know that's where the judgment would get sort of pronounced but also in like a, in a very loving way right like kind of the the voices of like reason and caution and um and so i think that's just how i perceive of reality to some degree i think it is often the mothers who are you know in a way she's she's carrying a lot of the anxieties of society at the time right like what is best for my family in a very visceral way like she's trying to figure out you know she's she the politics of it aren't like an abstract thing to her she's not a philosopher or like political scientist or like an armchair you know speculator she's thinking how will this affect my life how will this affect my children's lives like that's you know and i just want the best for them whatever the best is so in a way ma was like a great character to kind of crystallize all those different tensions and to make them very real rather than it being just like oh we're debating values or like politics you know she's like no what we're talking about is like real lives like these are these are the people that i care about and i love and i want the best for them so she was very important in that sense and then siok may i think was important for abun because again as i said like with coming of age stories I think it's about how people define themselves in relation to other people. And so Siok Mei was his kind of first romantic love, right? That like love interest that is a coming of age. And in a way, a lot of figuring out who you are at that age is done in relation to like who you fall in love with and what happens out of that, right? That's like your first experience of like, oh, seeking love outside of the family and like having it either return or not. And so I think Siok Mei was very important for that. And then Natalie is like the next person that he meets and the one that he ends up with later on. And she is almost like a a foil to Siok Mei, the fact that she's so different and it's almost like he, she's a reaction to her. And so I think having those strong women in Abun's life, well, it felt, it felt realistic to me that that would be the case, but also that, in a way, they're all in conversation with each other through him. Yeah, I think that that was so beautifully done. And I think that it really, Abun's actions go sort of in one specific way throughout the novel. And it ends up being kind of aligned in some ways with Natalie's worldview and what and the, and the future for Singapore that Natalie really thinks should be happening. But Siak May continues to be that almost voice in the back of his mind being like, but there's another way. So even mm-hmm. when his actions say one thing internally, when you're in his head, you see this struggle and you see this tension. And I was wondering, is there was there ever a version of this novel where Abun ends up with Siok Mei and where he <laughs> sees the vision of Singapore and class liberation that she sees and kind of why or why not? So there there wasn't, sadly. I know people have asked me this because the ending is very sad, but I think it's because... I knew the ending from the very beginning because Abun to me was kind of the ever like the the Singaporean that I knew that I grew up with, you know, and that was the choice that had been made, right? That is the choice that led to Singapore being the country it is today. So I think Abun had to be that person by the very end. That makes a lot of sense to me. And as much as the ending is sad and does feel melancholy, I think as well. There's a scene early in the in the novel where Siak May goes to see Abun and almost apologize and try and reconcile with him because she realizes that she does reciprocate his feelings to a certain extent. And she catches him in this like moment of joy with mm-hmm. his family and mm-hmm. realizes that she can never 
be the person that he needs, or mm-hmm. maybe more concretely, he can never be the person that she needs because mm-hmm. he'll always make her choose. And so yeah. as much as the, as much as it's a sad ending, I think that especially with that scene and seeing into Siok May's head so briefly, in some ways it felt like there couldn't have been any other ending as much yeah. as, as a reader, I want Abu to like see yeah. that vision <laughs> so badly. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It, it It is sad. I think the the other thing about that is that I think I'm interested in how like politics are deeply personal, that we think of them as like rational choices or that like, oh, I, I intellectually have like worked something out. But often so much of like political alliances and so much of our beliefs and our moral systems are shaped by essentially just the people we love, right? It's who we feel the most kinship with, who we feel acceptance from, who we want to be with. And so much of like Abun's choices in the end are shaped by love. They're not shaped by, you know, him like intellectually working out like, is this right? Is this wrong? Right? It's so much linked to like the people in his lives and how like deeply personal it is. And the same for Seok Mei eventually, even though she starts out in a very principled place, by the end, she's more moved by the people that she cares about, right? The union workers, her parents and so on. And she's set on that path by her parents from the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for Abun, in some ways, the more rational so to speak part of it comes in the fact that he's a character who is constantly searching for stability and Mm -hmm. safety and some level of predictability in the world and his job working at the cc for the gaman initially appeals to him because it is all of those things it's Mm -hmm. predictable he knows what he's going to be asked he knows he can fulfill those expectations Mm -hmm. and his relationship with natalie in a lot of ways sparks from that desire for stability and growth Mm -hmm. and wanting to see his family survive and then also thrive Mm -hmm. so i guess sort of in that sense that Natalie is in some ways the foil to Siok May, how did you think about crafting Abun's relationship with Natalie and kind of the differences that we see in Abun's thought process between both women? Yeah, I think Siok May came much more fully formed to me from the beginning. Natalie was a more difficult character to write, maybe because she came later. But I did want us to fully understand Abun's attraction to her. And I did want her to be a, a very, you know, kind of a a believable, living, breathing character as well, even if the reader might not necessarily agree with what she believes or what she does, right? And so I think they speak to, as you mentioned, like kind of they, she appeals to his desire for that stability and that like safety, right? Because he's been hurt by Xiong Mei, essentially, of what he sees as kind of an unpredictable reaction. And from the very beginning, you know, even when he's a little boy, he's kind of, he's put off by like, disorder or feeling unsafe and that's why he's afraid of the sea you know he's afraid of the fish he's afraid of all of these like sort of unpredictable things around him as like this very small boy who can't control his surroundings and often is at mercy of them and then the war happens and that you know just like all the stuff that comes with that and so natalie feels like someone who in a way will protect him from all of that and you know being with her he can feel sort of temperate and calm and because he doesn't you know to some degree he doesn't love her in the way that he loves Xiaofei and there's a safety to that right because he can't get hurt in the same way that he can get hurt with Xiaomei. Yeah that's really interesting there's a safety because she can't hurt him in the same way. I didn't think about that while I was reading but Mm -hmm. that is absolutely I think what comes off. You said so many so many interesting things there but the one that I think I want to take hold of now is that 
Another aspect of the book that is super prescient for Aboon and his entire family is class disparity. And on the one hand, you have Syokmei, who is so deeply versed in the language of communism, who is so... I mean, I mean, she comes to Abu's house just like quoting Lenin back to back and, and it comes from the heart, right? Like she's, mm-hmm. she's saying it because she believes it and is still learning, I think, to put it in her own words and her own phrases. And then on the other hand, we have Natalie, who is the very definition of class hierarchy. She comes from a very rich background. She, her family owns a rubber plantation, you know, she's coming from these two separate places. And Abu gets kind of caught up in this struggle between what he views as being sort of past and present progress versus stagnation. But to me, a lot of those conversations also talk about not just kind of tradition and cultural values, but class disparity and where Mm -hmm. he wanted to see himself there. How did you think about kind of Aboon's relationship to class and how that evolved throughout the novel as he's kind of navigating these new political situations? Yeah, I think... In a way, again, he represented what a lot of Singaporeans at the time and maybe still today kind of believed and wanted, right? That they just wanted this materially better life. It's like, I, I don't want to be poor, right? And the fact that, you know, the Singapore that people know today is the one of like the skyscrapers and the highways and the like crazy rich Asians, like, you know, beautiful sky city and metropolis, but that it wasn't like that even like 50 years ago, that a lot of people grew up, you know, in, in, in great poverty. And, you know, like the story of Ma's mother and father, well, came in a way from my family, that my grandparents were illiterate, you know, they couldn't read or write. My my grandfather was a, a scrap metal collector who died because he handled a landmine that he thought, you know, was just like a piece of metal. So that Singapore was so different in this time, right? And that people wanted to get out of that. They saw escaping from poverty as like the main impetus for life that the main thing you had to do was to like escape this and so i think abun being caught between those two kind of represents the like the real struggles and the real debates that people were having at the time and in a way one other element that i want to add to the class um question was is that of colonialism right that the upper middle classes were wealthier often because they were more aligned with British colonialism, that they could speak English, they could get jobs within the government administration that the Chinese speaking populace couldn't, right? Or, you know, the the solely Malay speaking populace couldn't. And the ways in which that colonialism kind of enforced that hierarchy and that structure on society for their own gain. And so you're Abun is sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. He's like, do I want to improve standards of living? Do I want to stop being poor and to like help my community, you know, develop and grow? But in order to do that, I am aligning myself with this like somewhat more, you know, brutal force of like, you know, colonial class power in the form of Natalie. Or, you know, there's Siok Mei, whom he's like, yes, I love her and I understand her beliefs, but I, at the same time, I'm afraid of what's happening. And I think, too, to me, the theme of that colonialism and imperialism, I mean, it feels wrong to call it a theme when it's very real history, but in novel terms, the theme of colonial and imperialism. I think that one of the ways that that also really spoke to me was in Abun's deteriorating relationship with his uncle, who Mm -hmm. at the core of it is, I think, vehemently against that colonialism and imperialism and has a deep sense of what it means to be Singaporean and struggles so much against Abun because it's not that he's against 
prosperity or growth, whatever those words actually mean. But mm-hmm. he's against Abun's path because it's taking away from what Uncle believes to be Singapore and what it means yeah. to kind of have his cultural values and tradition. And yeah. Abun, in my mind, never really struggles up against that pushback. And he gets really defensive when Uncle talks about it. Mm-hmm. How did you think about kind of crafting Uncle as sort of that third or, you know, fourth character to really sort of mm. push back against the path that Abun is taking, especially mm-hmm. knowing that he speaks so deeply to the colonialism and imperialism that was happening at the time and is still yeah. happening today? Well, I think the way I think of uncle is that in present day Singapore, in the Singapore that I grew up in, the uncles of the time were entirely swept aside, right? They're the people that you don't really hear from. They were kind of, everyone was just sort of like, well, you know, let's just move on, like stop complaining. You know, we we need to build a better life, better country. What do you want? We just came out of war. You know, there was this kind of, and I think the uncles of the world were seen as somewhat impractical or sentimental or you know just like not not realistic but I think that their grief is very real and that their concerns were very real and so it was he was a very important character to me to be that sort of voice of dissent you know against what was going on around him even if ultimately his dissent leads to nothing because he's effectively you know overpowered but I think he and his descent, his his strength of conviction comes from what happens to Pa, right? Because Pa gets killed during the Japanese occupation, and he sees no difference between different imperial forces. He's like, it's the same thing. The Japanese coming in, it's the same thing. You know, the British coming. Whether that's an extreme perspective or not, and certainly many characters in the book don't agree with him. That's his perspective. He's just inherently suspicious of like greater powers. He's like, I don't trust anyone who comes in and says like, oh you're now going to change your life entirely and this is for your own good, right? He's just inherently suspicious of that. And I think too, that speaks so much also to the way that Ma sees the world and sees politics in the sense that uncle's suspicion in so many ways is because no matter who is kind of doing the colonizing, the tangible impacts in his life are probably going to be pretty similar, at least in his mind, I think. So that's, that's, I think, a really interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. And then I think to kind of continue the conversation along the lines of colonialism and imperialism, at the center of this story, as well as the story of of land, the Mm -hmm. title, The Great Reclamation, refers to a land reclamation project that is underway throughout most of the novel. So how did thinking about like the land and physicality of Singapore play in for you while you were writing the book? And why is it significant that one of the last climaxes of the novel focuses on the tension between Aboon and Natalie that occurs specifically about land that was kind Mm -hmm. of being kept quietly secret and separate from these other conversations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the land reclamation in a way for me was kind of the, maybe the metaphorical heart of the book in some way. I think because, you know, land reclamation itself um, and Americans probably know it better as landfill, right? So the creating of land from sea uh, or any water body, but filling it with sand and creating artificial land. I think it it speaks to, it's such a kind of audacious initiative, right? This this kind of idea that, oh, we could just, if we need more land, let's build it, right? That you're transforming something that seems so permanent and so set in stone, pardon my, uh, you know, the, the pun, but that can just be changed at will 
with great human intention and force, right? And to me, that speaks so so much to the project of nation building, like the idea of like creating a national identity, right? Creating the land, controlling the land, controlling the the population, and like this these questions of like destiny and like self self mass self um self determination, and and in a way the 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 fact that that is so incredible that you can do that but also in a way terrifying right the like the double double bind of that and so i think the land reclamation project was always central to the book even if it only happens towards the end of it because that's what they're always moving towards and just because so this actually because it takes place in the 60s that was actually the very beginning of this actual reclamation project that happens in singapore that then goes through to the 90s so what you're seeing in the book is like only the very beginning of it it's like the pilot project that that happens before the whole thing takes off and you know i think the islands what's important about them is that there is this quality of unreliability to them that they appear and disappear at will so they introduce this idea of like land being unfixed and being kind of malleable but in a way that is outside of human control and then later on the fact that they are then able to control it like that that is you know significant to the emotional arc of the book yeah i and i think especially because Natalie is ultimately the reason that they come under human control in that sense. Mm. And she does it knowing that Aboon will be upset about it. She goes straight to the uh, defense secretary and is like, "Mm, I know about this. (laughs) Well, but she is and she isn't, right? Because she opens the door for it. But ultimately, the one who has to make the choice is Aboon. And he he does make the choice to hand them over. So I think that that's the... She's kind of the, the... the like plot device that creates a situation where he has to make a moral choice and then he makes the choice that he does. Yeah. And he makes the choice that he does because of Sophmay, which is just really that like full circle moment of coming back to the fact that politics is personal. Right. And the fact that ultimately he's making this big land changing decision based on the two women that he's kind of loved and lost in different ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of Aboon's last thoughts in the book is future over past, progress over stagnation. As he makes that choice that will politically save Seokme and her husband, but will change the land that he lives on. We've talked about Aboon's kind of internal struggle throughout this interview. In your mind, do you think that's his kind of final ideological resting place? Or do you think he's going to kind of forever be influenced by this push and pull between Sokmi and, Mad- and Natalie and the kind of two different futures that they imagine for Singapore? Hmm. I think he tells himself that that is his resting, that is where he ends up. But I do think, yeah, it, it's what he says to himself. And the reality is probably something else. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. As kind of one of our last thoughts here, I also wanted to kind of call out the fact that this novel also, I think, really explores propaganda as a central question or theme. The characters are constantly asking each other, you know, who is brainwashing whom? Who is pushing what narrative? Who is succumbing to what narrative? And I was wondering if you could tell me about your process in writing a book where propaganda is so at the top of mind for every character and plays such a central role in kind of that macro plot that we were talking about before of what was happening with Singapore as a country, but then also that very direct micro plot of influencing the characters' decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think 
And when you read the history and all the differing accounts, that's the sense that you get, right? That, um, and as a historian, I'm sure, yeah, again, you you probably have way more experience with this than, than I do, but um, that history is never straightforward and that it's written from a certain perspective and that each perspective kind of views the other perspective as being propaganda. And then you sitting there and trying to figure out, okay, like, which was it? Maybe it's all, you know, like, I don't know, like, is it all subjective? Like, how do you make sense of all those contradictions? Um, and you can kind of see people's, you know, each, each person's point of view, depending where they're coming from and kind of what their upbringing was and their perspective. And so I think that is maybe the beauty of fiction that you, you know, that you can present all those contradictions in one place and have them like be in tension with each other and for them to like really struggle with it on the page and that the reader gets to experience all those different perspectives and maybe come to a conclusion for themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because the characters are so deep in their own convictions that somebody will often bring up the idea of propaganda and like they have active conversations about who is influencing whom. But as the reader, everybody is so set, except for in some ways Abu and who's going back and forth and what they believe that you almost forget that it could be being influenced by other things. You you lose the larger mm-hmm. political machinations that are happening because you just mm-hmm. see the characters and what they mm-hmm. believe. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why I wrote Abun the way he is, because as he's kind of a placeholder for the reader in some way, where you're like, I don't know who to believe, like what is actually going on. And he's sort of unconvinced in all ways. Yeah, everything speaks to him a little bit and nothing is kind of that perfect solution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah totally yeah and again i think that's what fiction can do that it doesn't have to you know it's not an op-ed or or an essay where you have to like suggest a, a clear answer that you can like hold all of those different possibilities in one place well thank you so much for coming uh rachel where can our listeners find you if they're interested in either reading the book if they haven't already or kind of keeping up to date on what your latest projects are yeah, so I am on Twitter and Instagram, uh, Rachel Heng QP at, um, on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find the book pretty much in any local bookstore or wherever books are sold. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And listeners, I will talk to you all next week. Goodbye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebelgirlsbookclub on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.